At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning, we're going to be continuing a series we began a couple of weeks ago called King of the Mountain. And in this series, we have seen in Matthew 21 through 23 how Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem for the last week of his life as the king of kings. But as he arrives, a number of different rival groups, leaders of the nation of Israel, try to tip him off of that raft and and drown him in their questions. And, And those questions came from the Pharisees and from the chief priests and the elders but also from a group called the Sadducees. And this morning we're going to continue to look at both the question that the Sadducees ask Jesus, but also how he answers it and how it demonstrates that he truly is the king of the temple mount and the king of kings over all. And so we're going to look today at the question that the Sadducees ask Jesus in Matthew 22, 23 through 33. But before we get there, I want to just make an observation that I've I've seen and observed in our culture today. And that is this. We are continually, uh, more all the time, living in what I call an echo chamber. What I mean by that is those around us often share our perspective. And there are so many options on television news and and internet news and in different places where we get our information that we are able to insulate and surround ourselves only with those who share our perspective. So that when we voice uh, an observation or a situation, it echoes back to us and is affirmed even if it is wrong. This came clear to me just this week. I don't know if you are aware, there's some news happening in our country uh, as, as normal. And I, I just spent some time the other night watching 10 minutes of one network's newscast and then 10 minutes of another network's newscast. And you would have thought that these were two totally different stories that were happening based on the reporting in one network and in the other. And, and we tend to float towards the network that says what we want to hear. So it echoes back to us to the truth. Now, here's the thing. If we're right, then that echo back reinforces truth. But if we're wrong, that echo back reinforces our error. And friends, I think what we see in the spiritual life is similar to what happens in the political world. What I mean by that is we surround ourselves with people who typically believe as we believe. And we read authors that reinforce the same kinds of questions and conclusions that we have developed. Now again, if we are right in our understanding of the spiritual world, then we, our, our, our truth bias is reinforced by those around us. But if we are wrong, then we can begin to think that our error is correct. Let me give you just a couple of examples of this phenomena happening. Let's say that you believe that there is no such thing as supernatural involvement in the world. You're a pure naturalist. That's your conviction and that's your observation of things. Well, you might run in circles that also believe that there is no such thing as a 
supernatural God who is involved in the world around us. And so they reinforce your bias. And the people that you read are skeptics like Bart Ehrman and others that, that also are going to enforce that perspective. And you know what? If you're right in your naturalism, then those voices around you are reinforcing the correct perspective. But what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? Then you're merely reinforcing your bias. This morning, I want us to look at an interaction that Jesus has with the Sadducees. And I believe that the Sadducees were people who were living in an echo chamber in the sense that They had lived out their lives and insulated themselves with the power and authority they had in the nation of Israel so that when they made a statement, people typically agreed with it. And when they asked a question of the other side, no one could answer it. So the Sadducees believed that they were right in their understanding of life after death. See, the Sadducees believed that there was no life after death, that there was no resurrection, that the spirit and the body of people died at the same time. That was their perspective. When they talked to their Sadducee friends, their Sadducee friends confirmed that there was no life after death. And when they asked questions to others, nobody else could provide an adequate answer to them that made them switch their perspective. And so in the echo chamber of the world of the Sadducees, it was foolish to believe in life that went on into eternity. But then they talked to Jesus. And when they talked to Jesus, guess what happened? He kicked down the wall of their echo chamber and allowed truth and light and grace to shine in. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look at this interaction that Jesus had with the Sadducees in Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. And I want, as we look at it, to not only see his perspective, Jesus' perspective about life after death, but I also want us to see a pattern for how we can be a salt and light and influence in a world that maybe has turned off the truth because in their echo chamber, their error has been reinforced. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and look at it a little more closely. It says, The same day the Sadducees came to Jesus. Now the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, the Sadducees say. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, the Sadducees say, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong. I love just the bluntness of Christ, right? You're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. 
And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, friends, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at that interaction that Jesus had with the Sadducees. And as we've done in this series, we're going to begin with the question that is asked, and then we're going to look at a couple of the different angles that Jesus takes in his answer to them. So the first thing I want us to do is look at the question that is asked. Well, what is that question? The question is simply this. The Sadducees were saying, the resurrection? Really? That's what they're asking. I mean, really? You believe in the resurrection? I mean, come on, Jesus. I mean, we look at this, and at the outset, it looks like a sincere question, but Matthew lets us know there's nothing sincere about it. Right from the get-go, he lets us know that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees come not believing in the resurrection, but wanting to show the ridiculousness of it. They they assume that Jesus believes in the resurrection, and so they want to set him up and expose the foolishness of a doctrine that Jesus was teaching. Now, in order to best understand this, I think it's important for us to look at who the Sadducees were. Now, Sadducees were a group of people that I want us to think in a, in a number of different angles about them. First of all, let's think about who the Sadducees were financially. Financially, they were loaded. They were the aristocrats of their day, okay? Uh, these were the, the upper echelon of Jewish society. They were not a very big group, but they were very wealthy. And you know how they got their wealth? They got their wealth because they ran the temple. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago, back in August, when we looked at Jesus coming into Jerusalem and turning over the tables of the money changers? Remember that account? And how they had set up this system to profit off of the sacrifices that they were offering and to force people to trade out their pagan money for temple money. We had an upcharge. Well, all of that money that came in, certainly a portion of it went to to, uh, the, the Roman establishment, but a bunch of it went into the pockets of the Sadducees who ran the temple area. You know, a number of years ago, when I first went to Israel, uh, we toured the priestly district of Jerusalem from the first century. And what what we saw, really, it broke my heart. Huge, huge homes with many, many baths. I mean, this is a world that didn't have a lot of water. So you can imagine what many baths meant. I mean, if you have a house with a lot of bathrooms now, it, it, it indicates something, right? Maybe that you have a lot of people in your house, I don't know. But certainly in the first century, many bathtubs inside of the home indicated a lot of wealth, and there was a lot of wealth among the priests, and they got that wealth. The Sadducees got that wealth through running the temple and profiting off the people of God who came to worship. Financially, they were loaded. Politically, the, the Sadducees were pro-Roman. Now, why were they pro-Roman? Because the Romans let them run their operation in the temple. They needed the Roman support in order to have their own little temple guard to protect their interests. That's, that's who they were. They, they, were, they were rich and they were, they were pro-Roman. They were territorial right there in Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, the Sadducees don't really show up in the accounts of Jesus until he comes at the end here to Jerusalem. Why? Because their influence was in Jerusalem. 
The majority of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee, but when he came to Jerusalem, he began to mess with their bottom line by turning over those tables, and suddenly they become one of the enemies of Christ. Financially, they were loaded. Politically, they were pro-Roman. Spiritually, spiritually, friends, they were earthbound in their understanding of the world. In other words, they did not believe in a lot of the supernatural things that, say, the Pharisees believed in. The Pharisees believed in angels. The Sadducees did not. The, 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 the Pharisees believed in life after death. The Sadducees did not. Spiritually, they were mostly earthbound in their perspective. But biblically, interestingly, they were some of the most conservative of their day. Now, you may be thinking, I've heard about the Sadducees before, that the Sadducees really were so conservative about the Scripture, they only had five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and that's mostly true. But what's most notable about the Sadducees as it relates to the Bible is the Pharisees had adopted all of the teachings of the rabbis and made them their own and made them as authoritative as the Scripture itself. The Sadducees came along and they said, we're going to reject all of this extra teaching that the rabbis have done that have made all of these rules and all these regulations about thousands of things, and we're going to just narrow it down to the most important stuff in their understanding, the stuff that Moses wrote about in the first five books of the Old Testament. So those were the Sadducees, wealthy, pro-Roman, earthbound in their theology, and embracing in a very strict way, but a very exclusive way, only the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they come to Jesus and they ask him their question. And their question is based out of one of their books, the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, there is some teaching there about how a brother would provide a legacy for his brother should his brother die. So if brother one has a wife and that brother dies and has no offspring, then brother two, if he's not married, would marry his brother's wife and the first offspring would be the heir of his brother. Does that make sense? Now, in our world, that doesn't make a lot of sense because we have grown up in a new covenant era where our influence is not just biological, but it's also spiritual. In other words, I can have an influence and leave a legacy by discipling someone that I help lead to Christ that is not my bloodline heir, right? That's new covenant. But in the old covenant time, it was all through the bloodlines. That's why you see all of these these lists of lineage in the Old Testament, and land was given to different families for generations, and even given back to families for generations. So the bloodline and the heir was very critical and very important. And so there's this teaching in Deuteronomy 25 about a brother doing the duty to provide an offspring for his dead brother. This is what we see in the story of Ruth, for instance, where Boaz provides an offspring for his cousin because he's the closest living relative who was able and willing to marry his cousin, his cousin's wife. So we see uh, in, in this instance, they come and they ask this question and they say, hey, if this happened and a woman ended up having all of these situations where she ended up with seven husbands in one life, then who would she be married to in the resurrection? Now, when they ask that, I'm guessing that they ask that with with their chest puffed out a little bit. 
and a little bit of a snicker on their face. But you know why? Because this is probably the question that always stumped the Pharisees. Every time a Sadducee and a Pharisee got in a fight, I'm guessing this little story would get brought up. And they would say, hey, solve this riddle, and then we'll talk about the resurrection. Because it seemed unsolvable to them. In their echo chamber, the people that they had previously asked this to could not provide an adequate answer. And so they assumed that Jesus would not be able to answer it either, that they would stump him. And he would have to admit that the idea of the resurrection was a little crazy or foolishly embarrass himself by providing an inadequate answer in public. This was the question that they posed to Christ. The resurrection? Really? Now, before we look at the the answer that, that Jesus gives them, which is amazing, right? Before we look at the answer that Jesus gives him, though, I want us to just, for, for a second, think about the kinds of questions that we have today that we feel like there really is no answer to. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of a question and you weren't sure how to answer it, or, or, or maybe you are sitting there this morning with a question that, that you do not have an answer to, and you think that no one has an answer to it. Because as you've thought about these issues, you've, you've read in some books, and they have reinforced the fact that there's not a good answer to this question. And as you have asked your friends, they might have reinforced that it's a great question that there are no answers to. Well, what are some of those questions that people might have today? Well, I'll give you one of them. One question you may have is, isn't the New Testament just full of errors? I mean, this, this book has got all kinds of mistakes in it. And you watch the documentary, and they reinforce that thought, and you, you have this idea that the New Testament is just full of errors. Or, or how about this? The flood of Genesis? Really? A flood? Really? You think, this can't possibly be? Or, or you, you have a, a, a thought about the, the resurrection itself. Jesus resurrected from the dead? Really? Really? I mean, people don't do that. And as you have those questions, you might gather around yourselves advisors who might reinforce those perspectives, and you feel like the question is unanswerable. I don't know what the question is that you have, but my guess is that many of you have either received a question or have a question where there is some issue inside of the Scripture where you go, this, really? Really? Daniel in the lion's den? Jonah and the fish? Really? What happens if we take those questions and instead of just bouncing them around our echo chamber, what happens if we instead take them to Christ? How might he answer our questions that seem unanswerable? Well, friends, guess what? We don't have to guess. We see it as the passage continues. The first answer that Jesus gives, when they get, he gets the question about the resurrection, the first answer that he gives is this. He says, yes, the resurrection, the scriptures promise it. He says, yes, about the resurrection. Yeah, there is a resurrection. And I know that because the scriptures promise it. Now, we see this at the beginning of verse 29, where Jesus says, after he tells them that they're wrong, he says, you don't know the scriptures. He says that to the the Sadducees. Now, that would have been fighting words to a Sadducee. The Sadducees believed they understood the Bible better than anybody else. And so for Jesus to say to them, you don't understand the scriptures, 
they would have thought, hey, back off. But then he goes on to demonstrate it. Now, we might expect Jesus to turn to a place like Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 to defend the idea of the resurrection from Scripture. And by the resurrection, I mean the idea that all of us will spend eternity someplace, either in the presence of God or, or in the presence of judgment forever, in heaven, if you will, or hell. Jesus might have turned to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where it says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Many Old Testament scholars would tell you this is the clearest teaching on life after death inside of the Old Testament. So you might imagine Jesus would have turned to Daniel 12 too, but he doesn't. Where does he go? He goes to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. Now, why would he go there? Based on everything that I've I've already said today, why would Jesus have them turn in their Bibles or or tap in their apps to Exodus 3, 6? Any ideas? Because it's one of their books, right? Jesus says, he doesn't say, you don't know the scriptures. Why have you thrown out the book of Daniel? He says, you don't know the scriptures. Let me go to one of the texts that you believe in. And furthermore, let me not go to one of the texts that you believe in and go to some obscure verse that nobody can understand, that nobody's ever seen. Jesus says, I want you to turn in one of your books to one of the most prominent verses in the entire book. A verse that you have memorized, that you have said, that you have heard in synagogue your entire life. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. And then Jesus speaks it to them. He says in verse 31, Have you not read what is said by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Friends, this section of Scripture was so familiar to them that when Jesus began to say, I am the God of Abraham, they would have mouthed the other two. I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob. They, they knew where he was going. This is not obscure. It's right down the middle. But Jesus turns to Exodus 3, 6 to let him know that the Scripture teaches the resurrection. But how does it teach it? Well, it teaches it in such a beautiful way. Because when Moses wrote Exodus 3, 6, when God spoke it into being, and, and certainly at the time of Christ, but when, when Moses even wrote it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, friends, had already died years before. I mean, there's thousands of years of history in the Old Testament, right? It's not like it all happened on a weekend. These were not all contemporaries. It was over a long period of time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived out their earthly lives and had already died when God says, I am the God, not I was the God, but I am the God, present tense, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive, and they are evidence that there is a resurrection because they are in the presence of God. He made a commitment to them that he would not cease and that it would go on for all time. What a, what a commitment. Jesus doesn't anchor 
the evidence for the resurrection, friends, around something intrinsic in humanity that God just can't get rid of it, like cockroaches, right? You turn out the lights, they just scatter and they come back. He doesn't, he doesn't make an argument for the resurrection based on us. He makes an argument for the resurrection based on God and his commitment to us. I love what John Stott says about this. He says, Jesus does not, like Socrates, infer the resurrection from some inherent part of us which will survive death, but he hangs the hope of life after death totally upon the generosity of God who stoops to win our hearts upon this earth and cannot bring himself at death to scrap what is precious to him. What a powerful thought, right? We will live forever, friends, because God has chosen it that way. He has made a commitment to us that extends beyond the grave. What a hope that you have for those that you know who have trusted Christ and have died before us. What a hope that we have for those of us today who have trusted in Christ that when we get to eternity, that we will be in the presence of God forever. He'll be our God, not for a season, but for all time because of his commitment to us. What a hope is available to you today if you walked in here with your questions and your concerns and lack of belief in Christ, but maybe as we're talking about this, that the hope of eternity, God is wooing your heart towards him. If you trust Christ even today, you can know that he will be your God, not for a season, not for a month, not even for a lifetime, but for all time. What a gift. Jesus argues that the scripture promises the resurrection. And he demonstrates it in Exodus 3.6. Now, friends, I, I just want to quickly make a, a side point about this. Jesus lets them know that the, the, the Scripture teaches things that they didn't understand. In other words, the Sadducees had questions they thought the Bible couldn't answer, and yet the Bible could answer it. They just didn't understand the Scriptures well enough to see it. And friends, this is part of the argument when someone or, or you might think the Bible has questions in it that, that are unanswerable. Well, maybe it's possible that you just don't understand the Bible well enough. Maybe it's possible that Christ understands the Scripture better than you, and if we were having a conversation with him, he could take the Bible and show you what you're missing that helps the contradictions come into alignment, that helps the confusing make sense. Charles Ryrie says this about challenges with the Scripture. He says, when we, when we understand that we have a relationship with God, we look at the Scripture differently. And he compared it to a, a man who has a relationship uh, with his wife that is poor, and if the man has a relationship with his wife that is, that is poor and there, there's not good trust, if that man comes home and he sees his wife on the front porch talking to another man, then, then the husband becomes enraged and thinks the worst. Who is he and how long has this relationship been going on, et cetera, et cetera. But if that man has a good relationship with his wife and he comes home and he sees the wife and another man talking on the front porch, he, he begins to think, hey, who is that? that the new neighbor that has come over to just share some contact information in case there's a need for emergency? Is that the FedEx delivery guy? Who is this that they came by? 
Totally different perspective. And Ryrie uses that to talk about our understanding of Scripture. If we do not have a relationship with God, we look at Scripture with great concern. And we look at any challenge that we see as evidence of its weakness. But if we have a relationship with Christ, then we have a context of a relationship with God that allows us to see the challenges of Scripture as opportunities for answer. Friends, Jesus answers that the Scripture promises the resurrection. And the Scripture answers the questions that we have as well. The second answer that Jesus gives, though, is this. He says, yes, the resurrection is real. And he says, the Savior powers it. The Savior powers the resurrection. We see this in verse 29, the second part, after telling them at the beginning of 29 that they were wrong because they don't understand the Scriptures, but he continues and says, you're wrong because you don't know the power of God. In other words, the resurrection is not powered by humanity. It is powered by God. It is not powered by us. It is powered by the Savior. So things are possible in the resurrection that are impossible on, in the earth and, and in, our, in our lives. The question that the Sadducees asked, they had concocted this scenario that seemed unanswerable because they assumed that eternity would be identical to earthly life. And so in earthly life, if a woman marries someone and that person falls into a deep coma and then she marries someone else and that person falls into a deep coma and then she marries someone else and that person falls into a deep coma, you begin to think that she has really bad luck, right? But at the end of that day, if all of those people were were revived by medical science, then she would have seven wives. That was the question that they were asking. Eternity must be like our life. It must be powered by us. And so this scenario makes no sense to us. But, but Jesus responds in such a beautiful way. He says, you don't understand the power of God because the power of God is able to provide an eternity that is different yet connected to the world in which we live. It's connected in the sense that there is continuity of personhood. It is still Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's continuity of person. They are recognizable. There's relationship that is connected to their identity in the future. But it's different in the sense that the institution of marriage and procreation of children serves a purpose inside of this life in its particular form. In eternity, there still is knowledge of another. There still is even relationship, but it's it's not the same as it was in this life. It's become something even better. Jesus says it's more comparable to that of the angels, and there he's speaking of the spiritual reality of it, not that we become angels, but that it's spiritual in nature. It's it's hit a higher plane. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 40, when speaking of the resurrection, he says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. In other words, the resurrection is just a little bit different than now. So the the kinds of questions that we ask about who are we married to in eternity if we had multiple spouses in this life doesn't quite add up because we've just hit a higher plane. Benjamin Franklin, though not a professed believer in Christ, I, I think 
had this in mind as he thought about the changes that eternity would bring. This is written by Franklin himself and placed at a monument by his graveside. It says, the body of Benjamin Franklin is there, a printer, and like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out and stripped of lettering and gilding lies here. Food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost. For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition, connected and amended by its author. Friends, there is a a hope in eternity that is even greater than this life because it is not powered by us. It is powered by him. And so some of the challenges and questions, and that, that ought to greatly encourage us. That means that, that this life does not preclude God from delivering in eternity what he has promised, whether it's multiple marriages or whether it's cremation or whether it's disease and decay in this life, whether it's drowning at sea or, or burned. This life, God is able to transition into the next life with whatever he finds. Therefore, Jesus says, the Savior powers the resurrection. And friends, once again, I just want to place this in the bigger context. When we have questions or we get questions, sometimes the reason why those questions seem like they're unanswerable is because we have placed a limit on what is possible. And the limit that we place on what is possible is what we can do. In other words, how could a fish swallow Jonah in the high seas and Jonah survive? That doesn't make sense. Right. With us, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. And on and on and on. The questions that we have, I think Jesus would answer and say, you think you have an unanswerable question. It's probably because you either don't understand the Scriptures correctly or you don't understand the power of God. Friends, as we come today and as we worship, may we be a people who looks to the hope and the power and the beauty of the resurrection based on the Savior who powers it and the Scripture that promises it. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship today, and we pray that you would just guide us now as we remember what you have done for us in Christ through the celebration of communion together. Um, We we pray, Father, that we would look to the, the hope of eternity that is provided for us in Jesus. And we lift these things up in his name. Amen.